Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 140. This episode is with Yuri Pagel. Yuri is the performance coach at Ajax. So a great, uh, another great big club from Europe. And we're getting a perspective of a coach working in one of the major leagues around Europe as well. So it was great to delve into his background and his career. Another non-football background. So good to to delve into that to start with. We then spoke about in-season versus off-season periodization. We spoke about programming plyometrics and then also triphasic training. So we didn't necessarily talk about the use of triphasic training in in terms of how probably a lot of people use it, but we delved into um, where Yuri thinks isometric work fits, where he um, thinks eccentric work is more relevant, um, and also the differences throughout age groups as well, um, working in those different different parts of triphasic training. So I think this this episode was probably the episode where we dealt delve into the most in terms of strength training for football and the most detail Yuri gives great detail on his approach his programming around um, programming strength and also obviously going into more plyometric and power work as well so it was great to speak to him I followed his work on social media and he puts out some unbelievable content so it was great to have him on the on the podcast and I hope you take plenty from this episode as well Thank you to everyone that got in touch regarding the podcast with Des Ryan as well. I'm glad people are enjoying that episode. If you've not listened to that one, just head back one episode, episode 139. Um, Des was superb on the podcast and it's great to hear people are benefiting from that one. And just on that point, if you do enjoy the podcast, please head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review with a short comment on your favourite guests, your favourite topics, and it just gives me a good idea about the sort of people that we want to get on and the sort of topics we want to discuss as well. And if anyone's got any recommendations, a future guest, we've got the next few lined up, um, but in a few weeks' time, we'll be looking for more guests, so recommendations of future guests, people that are doing some incredible work in football and infecting performance on the pitch, please let me know and I'll reach out to them and try and get them on. But let's delve into the episode 140 with Yuri Pagel. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 140. I am delighted to be joined today by Yuri Pagel. The performance coach at Ajax. So, Yuri, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's an honor. It's great to have you on, mate. I've followed your work and the stuff you put out um, for a fair while now, and you put some incredible information out. So, I had to get you on to delve into a bit of it and see what's going on in, in your role. Um, but for anyone that hasn't followed your journey, seen what you've been up to, do you want to just take us through your career, where you've been, what you've been up to? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a whirlwind for sure. Like, uh, I think my first podcast episode or appearance was like last year or something. And like every year, like this story gets a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> like what I've done up until this point, I think getting into like the, you know, the gist of it, I started off after high school, uh, going into business school, uh, at the university of Amsterdam. So that's actually my background is in business. Um, but as I, like my passion was always sport and it was always training. I just never thought like there was a true career path in it. So I went into business, which was definitely, uh, a passion of mine too, just not the way, like I looked at sport and I looked at training. So I was just super adamant about training and, 
Uh, I would be in the gym for hours and hours and hours as I was in school. Uh, and basically, I organically kind of grew into an unpaid internship at one of the, the uh, uh, just a regular gym here in Amsterdam uh, called Vonnel Gym. I just went up to them because I started coaching people like just, you know, I, I started correcting them about their squat, their deadlift, their bench press, all those kind of things, because I was so invested into understanding the training process for myself. I started to help other people if I saw, you know, that I thought that something was quote unquote wrong. Um, and I used to be pretty dogmatic at that age. So I, <laughs> I thought something was wrong. Was very, oh yeah, it was, definitely, <laughs> it was wrong. Um, so yeah, I started to correct people. And, uh, you know, the owners of the gym and the coaches, they started to notice that. So I went up to them. I was like, hey, like, this is my passion. I want to see if I can do this on the side while I'm still still in school. Can I maybe do like an unpaid internship? And they were like, you know, absolutely. Um, and I did that for, I want to say about six months, uh, six or nine months. And then I grew into uh, teaching group classes and doing PTs, just general population, nothing athlete specific, even though I was definitely, you know, I wanted to get into pro sport. Uh, but that wasn't really something that was on my mind or I saw as realistic. So I was still in school and I was just doing this on the side and, and training every, every single day and really enjoying that, enjoying that process. Um, and over the years, I want to say after my second year of working with GPP clients, I got the opportunity to coach a uh, semi-professional or it's a professional basketball team here in Amsterdam, uh, Apollo, but they're the players like, there's a couple of them that are paid and the others are like unpaid. So it's, you know, I consider it kind of semi-professional and um, the gym that I worked at basically uh, sponsored the team with like gym memberships and all that kind of stuff. And they were like, Hey, Yuri, would you want to coach them? Because they don't have a strength conditioning coach. I was like, heck yeah. Like get me into basketball. Basketball is a sport that I grew up in. So I was definitely open to that experience. And so I did that for, I want to say about two years, I was their head of strength and conditioning uh, unpaid. I had no experience working in sport whatsoever. Um, and it just allowed me to make so many mistakes on the, and, and learn how to program for athletic populations and see what worked and see what didn't work and all that good stuff. And, you know, you simply put able to make mistakes and get skin in the game at a very young age, uh, as far as coaching or strength and conditioning is concerned while I was still in school. And I think that's a super valuable experience um, because by the time I got my first real role in professional basketball, which I want to say is now three something. Yeah, I want to say it's three seasons ago in Den Bosch, like I had already had a couple of years of training and actually being fully responsible for writing programs and coaching the athletes and talking to them about anything from lifestyle habits, all that kind of stuff. I already had that experience and I'd already made a bunch of mistakes, right? So I got into to true pro sport. I started working with the national basketball team. And from there, it kind of evolved and evolved until two years ago. Um, I got asked by my current bosses over at Ajax to, uh, to interview for, for a job as performance coach there. And uh, slowly but surely, I, I started to integrate a little bit more until now uh, going to be promoted as the head of strength as for this summer. So I'll be full time into football. It's, it's going to be my third year actually working in football. Um, and I'm going to go full time now as a as the head of strength. So it's it's truly an honor to to have, you know, the, the career I've had so far. A um, lot of different steps. I've met a lot of amazing people on the way, and um, to look back and be like, hey, I'm 28 with a business background, and I'm in the position where I can be head of strength at such a, a historic club, even uh, such a such a successful team, is is truly an honor. And I I, I can't be more excited about the opportunity.
Yeah, brilliant. And congratulations on the on the promotion. Um, I was going to ask, in terms of the bit, because I didn't know a bit about the business background. So in terms of studying business and taking that into like the roles where, where you've worked in sport, is there anything you've sort of carried forward? Because we've spoke about this on the podcast before about lessons from the business world. For sure. I think actually the further I've now progressed in my own career, uh, you know, climb the corporate ladder per se, uh, the, the more I think the lessons I learned in business school transfer to what I'm doing right now. Like when I, um, to put it this way, when I started coaching, like coaching and leadership, of course, are very similar things. So like you have leadership courses in school, you have business psychology, all that kind of stuff in there. So you have these basic rules of, you know, quote unquote, leading people or leading organizations. And those are valuable. But as you go a little bit further up the ranks and you, for instance, have to work with other coaches, uh, you have larger teams under you, this and that. You have to communicate with different uh, different experts, for instance, nutritionists, physical therapists, doctors, sport coaches, etc. Then you really, 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 in my eyes, I start to see a lot more value in my background where I came from because I see a lot more similarities. Yeah. Like a lot of the problems, you know, the problems that I'm seeing right now are the things that I'm experiencing. I actually remember from school. So that's pretty funny. Like I was always like, yeah, like you learn some lessons here and there, but you know, how much is it really? And of course it's still very general what you learn in school, but I do, you know, looking back now, the further I've gone, the more I think like I'm actually starting to use a lot of those lessons, maybe subconsciously, subconsciously, maybe I'm not even aware of it, to be honest, but like I, I can notice that I, that is definitely helping me uh, at this point in my career. Brilliant. And then, what about first um, perceptions of the football world? Because obviously being involved in basketball, being in a different sport, a slightly different background to many coaches in football, what are sort of the standout things for you when you first step into a football role? Yeah, I think um, I've, I've said this before, like my first year working in football was relatively in a pretty big adjustment not necessarily working with a different sport. I've worked with a ton of different sports, uh, weightlifters, uh, field hockey players, basketball, boxing, MMA. Like I've, I've worked with a ton of different athletes. So adjusting to understanding and analyzing a different sport, analyzing the bioenergetics, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, that's relatively simple. Like it's very difficult and it takes a lot of time, but I don't think that's once you've created this foundation as a strength and conditioning coach and you've created these principles that you adhere to, you can decently easy or should decently easy be able to shift between sports, right? Yeah. Because a lot of the principles stay the same. Like we're still working with human beings. We're still working with athletic populations, et cetera, et cetera. But what is very different from sport to sport is a culture. Yeah. The culture tends to be very different, especially now I have to look at like the thing that I control, which would be then, you know, strength and conditioning, right? If you have strength conditioning rugby or combat sports or American football, there's a lot of emphasis placed on strength and conditioning or physical development because there's the thought, and that's been embedded into the culture, that you need to be well-rounded physically or well physically developed in order to succeed in that sport. Now, there's other sports at the other end of the spectrum, which we might define a little bit more as skill or tactical and technical or technical oriented sports as a game of football 
where maybe there's a little bit less of an emphasis on strength conditioning or physical development. Because if you look at the athletes, if you talk to the athletes, they feel like they can get away with just being masters at technical and tactical uh, aspects of the sport, maybe mental, but not necessarily physically, right? That's, that's how they look at it. Maybe they don't even understand that, for instance, it's not about, you know, getting bigger or getting stronger. It could be about a ton of different things, but they associate strength conditioning with like getting strong or getting big, right? That's yeah. the common, common perception of, of football players and coaches about what strength conditioning is. So me getting into a new sport, understanding what the culture is. So what the perception is of strength conditioning, what the players think that I'm going to offer them and how that's going to assist them in their career. You have to understand that first in order to then, I don't want to say manipulate, but uh, communicate with them in such a way that they start to understand the value. But you also have to understand where they come from and why they wouldn't or would value it in the first place. Strength conditioning that is right. Because you know, in football, it is true. Like you need a certain level of physical competencies for lack of a, of a better term. And then from there on, it is how good are you at the tactical and technical aspects of the game of football? If you look at any high performer, like you're not going to have super slow athletes or super weak athletes. You're also not going to get, you know, the fastest human beings on earth or the strongest human beings on earth. They're all within like this bandwidth of athletic competencies. You just need to be good enough at athletic competencies to be able to survive within your sport. And then from that point on technical and tactical wins, that's yeah. going to be in any sport, but especially in football, that technical and tactical aspect, we can generally say is quote unquote more important. Right? So with that rant, aside it's i have to understand where they're coming from and then start to understand how i can best communicate to them the importance of the work of strength conditioning and what we're actually trying to do compared to what they perceive or think that strength conditioning is doing for them because that might be a little bit of a, a common misconception about strength conditioning in football at the moment from what i've experienced personally because you then you have the different types of players within a squad, don't you? Some that are more technical, some that are more physical, but then squad to squad, team to team, country to country, the cultures are all very different, aren't they? So I think it's a great point that you make there, finding out what the culture's like and then um, your approach with different players of, of the technical side or the physical side or whatever can be slightly different then, can't it, with who you're speaking to? Or the language Absolutely. you use as well. Absolutely. And that's one of the th things like for me, basketball was always relatively simple because I played the sports. I knew the lingo. Yeah. I knew how to talk to basketball players and I knew how to talk to basketball staff and support staff, all that kind of stuff, because I had played the sport. I understood them. And then you get into a different sport, whether it's, it's combat sports or football, whatever sport you're heading into, you have to understand the language. So that's also like, a rule or a principle that I learned from business school is when you head into a new situation, you have to learn how to work within that situation and understand it first before trying to change things. Because yeah. people want to come in like a bull in a China shop and me naturally, I have the tendency to do the same thing, but you have to be like, okay, I'm just going to step back first orientate, basically look around, understand things before I then slowly start to implement the most important things that I think need to be improved upon. Because if you come in as the bull in the China shop, like, you know, generally you're going to come into a culture that's already 
well-developed, you know, especially at a, a level of a team that I went into, like they're successful without me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they're very, very successful. Like they don't need me. So it's my task to try to optimize certain processes within the company. But if I just come in like that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the bull in the China shop, I might ruin more things that I can actually fix or improve upon or whatever you might want to call it. So that's definitely one of the things I, I learned from school and also have to learn a little bit in practice, you know, how to do that and how that actually works is to first observe analyze and then see, okay, what's the most important thing for me to fix? And I like to call this uh, looking at it as a virus, like what's the biggest virus we have to address instead of thinking, okay, we got to fix everything at the same time. Yeah, no, brilliant. That's, that's all a great bit of information there. I think that's um, coaches can take a lot away from that. Um, we, next thing I wanted to talk about was programming and programming strength in particular, looking at in-season and off-season or out-of-season approaches and some of the sort of main um, the main targets that you're trying to hit with your players? So starting off in-season and then moving into, into the off-season as well. Yeah, I think, you know, of course, every country is going to have their, their in-season and off-season situations. And if you play European play, of course, you know, your schedule is very different. Uh, I think one thing that really characterizes training in football compared to a lot of other sports is the fact that it is truly a year round sport. Like, you know, if you work in basketball and I'm going to use this comparison pretty often because they're the two sports that I have the most experience in Yeah, basketball tends to have a three month or roughly three month off season. That means that I'm in an in season situation of nine months a year. And basically what I'm going to try to do in those nine months is maintain or prevent detraining of physical qualities, if that makes sense. And then what I'm doing during the three months that I'm not in season, all of a sudden I have all this adaptive energy available to me in the athletes because they have more time, less stress. So they'll have much more energy uh, to expend, uh, to spend on the athletic developmental process, or maybe it's tactical, technical, whatever they need to work on. They have a far more adaptive energy that I can push towards development. So the off season is basically looking at, okay, uh, of course I'm recovering from the last season first, first and foremost, and then I'm spending all this time on stimulating physical qualities that matter, right? The ones that matter that are of importance to performance in that sport. That's a whole another discussion we could get into. Um, but that's what I do for those three months. And then the other nine months, basically I am largely looking at maintaining those physical qualities so I can build upon that base for the following off season, stimulate, maintain, stimulate, maintain, stimulate, maintain. This way I am not overloading my athletes during the season with unnecessary training or ways of spending energy and time when all of that should go towards performance and playing the game, playing the sport, all that kind of stuff. So I'm minimizing risk of injury, but I'm also ensuring long-term athletic or player development, right? Now, if I then compare that to football and we're in a sport where maybe, you know, you know, some guys might have six weeks off, a lot of them have two or three, like now with Euro 2020 or 2021, whatever you want to call it, like there's going to be players that might, you know, if you make it to the championship game and you have Champions League qualifiers, fortunately we don't this year, if you have Champions League qualifiers, like you're basically, you don't have any vacation. Yeah. Maybe you have a week, two weeks off. And what are you going to do in there? Like train, please no, like go on vacation. You need it. Like you have a full blown season ahead of you again. So 
we don't have that massive amount of time or that massive block a year to dedicate towards training or athlete or player development, if that makes sense. So that then has huge consequences for how I view the training process in season. Now, looking again, though, at basketball versus football, fortunately, football has less of a demanding game schedule than basketball does. Like consider the NBA having three, maybe four games a week. Yeah. Like it's, and you have to travel throughout the entire United States. Like that's, that's mm -hmm. tough. Now, of course, the highest levels in European football will have European play. You might have cup games and you'll have league play. So it can still generally you're going to have two games a week. Right. That's what you're going to get at to get yeah. into. But you might have international breaks where some players aren't playing and they might have 10 to 14 days without a game, maybe a friendly. Uh, or you might have situations where you're only playing one game a week. So it is much easier to periodize your weeks. And that's kind of how I view in-season training. We work around the game model. So we work around the games that we're playing and we say, okay, on which day can we train? Um, it's much easier to, to provide those training stimuli, whether technical, tactical, physical, doesn't matter. We can, it's much easier to periodize those throughout the week or throughout the season because we don't have any other time that we can do it during the year. And because the game schedule kind of allows it a little bit more. The biggest thing I would say though, is if we do have to dedicate more time towards training during a season or in season phase, we do have to be extremely cautious that we're not risking anything that doesn't need to be risked. And by that, of course, we're talking increasing injury occurrence rate. Mm. So, we could say this athlete needs to get stronger, blah, 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 whatever. We could say because his metrics on the, his outputs on the isometric myth I pool is 15% lower than the average player or the, you know, the average player at his level that he's vying to play at, right? Maybe that's a sign that you say, okay, we have to up the ante there, get him a little bit stronger, make sure he, that he can, again, quote unquote, survive athletically at that level. Maybe that's the case, right? Now I can say, okay, we have to get him strong now. Right? We have to get him as strong as possible immediately. So we start loading him heavy at the beginning of the year. That could have serious consequences acutely at that moment because we're overloading the athlete's capabilities based on the stress that they're already being um, that they're already being exposed to from playing the game, you know, uh, media, <laughs> friends and family, coaching staff. Like that's a lot of stressors. So maybe it's too much acute stress, or maybe over time you're burning them out. And chronically, it's going to be too much stress and they either or get injured during either phase, right? We want to prevent that. So if I look at in-season training in football, because we don't really have the off-season, I look at it from a couple of different perspectives. One, I do the least amount that I could possibly do and then hoping to get drive and adaptation. Yeah. If I don't drive an adaptation, then I can always say, okay, we're going to do a little bit more. I'd much rather do too little than do too much because the consequences is we might've wasted three weeks or the other consequence we might've wasted four months and we just cost our team a million, right? And two, uh, two losses, something like that. So I'd much rather do a little bit too little and then have to go a little bit more and more and more until we find that sweet zone where they're improving, but we're giving them a minimal, what I call effective dose to drive adaptation, then going too far over that line and now we're at putting our athletes at risk of getting injured. So I want to do the minimal amount that I can throughout the season, as in, you know, whatever we're trying to improve upon. That's one principle that I adhere to. The second one, I want to stress as far away from the game as possible, 
right? Because I don't want to acutely influence negatively performance on the pitch, yeah. right? So yeah. if I do a heavy strength session two days before a game or one day before a game, and I do a heavy strength session and we're doing, I don't know, sets of uh, safety bar reverse lunges, sets of seven, and they're going to an, an RP eight and a half, like that's likely going to have some negative consequence on performance on the pitch on game day, right? So I want to stay away from that. So how do I look at it? Again, I have this game model. What days are the games? When are their off days? When are their heavy practices? And I work around that because I am the least important piece of the puzzle here. You know, I want to say that I'm important, but I'm really not. Um, <laughs> but I have to understand, like, it's less important than playing the game of football. They have to be as physically ready and mentally ready to perform in practice as well as in games. So I don't want to compromise any of that. So I have to give them that minimal effective dose at the right moments. So then if I look at those two principles, right, performance comes first and making sure I'd rather do too little than too much. Then the third principle is, okay, now find the parts or moments in the schedule when I can load. So for me, those are days before a rest day, right? Let's say we're doing heavy hamstring loading. Do I want to do that 24 hours before they're being exposed to high velocity sprinting? Mm, think not, like rather not. But what if they have the rest day the next day? Oh, perfect. That's a good moment to load because now they have the next day to recover. Day after they come back, they're fine to go. They can go on the field. We don't have any unnecessary risk. So that's, for instance, a day where we might load a little bit heavier. How about the international breaks, right? Some players maybe need a little bit more of a physical stressor, you know, Likely they're going to be the substitutes that aren't going to be called up to national teams. So those are already exposed maybe to a little bit more chronic stress from playing less games, et cetera, et cetera. Of course they have their plus one game uh, or plus one training sessions where they tend to be a little bit more on the higher intensity, high volume side, but they tend to have a little bit less stress, right? We can say that generally as general statement, a blanket statement, we can say that the subs one aren't going to be called up to national teams as frequently and two, they're not going to be exposed to as much stress. So those weak, those weeks, the international breaks are fantastic moments to give them the load that we can't really expose them as much to throughout the rest of the year. So I'm looking specifically, when can I load during the week and when can I load during the season? Because I have to find these moments when it's ideally, ideally not going to influence performance as much, because again, I'm not as important as I want to be. <laughs> great points there and i, I want to just ex expand on that and and i'm going to talk about triphasic training now but i don't necessarily mean um how a lot of people use it where they work from eccentric to isometric to concentric but just your approach on where you see the triphasic approach fitting within a season off season or just generally with the approach with players in terms of timing you know i I think I got exposed to Cal Dietz's work in his book probably four or something years ago, I th think. And at that point, it gave me something to hold on to, right? It gave me structure to programming for athletic populations. Um, I first attempted it in an off-season setting and it worked perfectly there, right? You're just working throughout the off-season and you're just in basketball, right? And you're just setting up, you're, you're hitting all these markers, boom, boom, boom. And they're progression, progressing through everything. And I honestly, I also did an in-season and that worked terribly, right? Because the fatigue from super maximal eccentrics is, yeah. is no joke, like uh, locally, but also 
uh, globally from a, a central nervous system perspective. So I noticed that that didn't really work uh, for my populations that, that I was working with at the time. But what I did really notice is, and it might be so simple that this is my biggest takeaway from working with triphasic training at that phase in my, in my career, is utilizing tempo allowed me a couple things. One, it allowed the athlete to learn a movement without me having to coach. If someone has to be in a position for five to seven seconds or has to get through the eccentric contraction or an eccentric phase of the movement in five or seven seconds, the odds that they're going to mess up and be in this technically inefficient position is going to be smaller. They're much more likely from what I've seen in practice, at least, to self-correct if they move slowly yeah. because these inefficiencies are going to be amplified if you move slower, right? That's at least what I've seen personally. So I didn't have to coach as much. And what happened, they kind of adjusted to it themselves and they started coaching themselves because they had to. Um, and I, that was like a takeaway. I was like, oh, that's, that's brilliant. So from at that point, I started to utilize the idea of accentuating, not overloading, accentuating the isometric phase or the eccentric phase of movements as a learning mechanism, as a teaching mechanism of movement. So let's say I'm working with a younger population, you know, uh, an under 23 group, an under 19 group, something like that, where the athletes have less of a training age, I can expose them to maybe lifts that I value or exercise that I value within the process and that I want to load for outputs later on in their career, whatever, I can utilize these eccentric and isometric emphasized movements basically to allow them to groove the right and efficient movement patterns that I want to see, especially in bigger groups if I can't adjust everyone at the same time. And if you've ever worked with 16 to 20 year olds, they're all over the freaking place. Like they're everywhere. Like they do not want to listen. They just want to do their own thing. They're talking about girls. They're talking about this and that and whatever. So if I can get them to self-correct without me having to correct them the entire time, that's super valuable to me. That's super valuable. And not only that, if you understand working with athletes, especially at higher, higher levels of competition, there's definitely one thing you're going to see. There's competitiveness. Like they're competitive. If you put a number up or another person puts a number up, they're going to want to break that number. Now, some of them might not have that as much in the weight room. I'm fortunate to work with a lot of kids and a lot of guys throughout my career that are very competitive. So then what I do is I can utilize the eccentric accentuated or isometrically accentuated movements to limit or minimize external load. They're teaching them, themselves the movement, right? It's self-correcting, largely at least, not entirely, of course. But as they're doing so, they're doing so at less load. Because if I have to do a five-second pause in the bottom position of a lift, and then I want to do that as heavy as possible, I'm by definition not going to use as much weight as if I didn't have that five-second pause, that five-second isometric uh, phase of the movement, because I can't handle the same external load. So it's already self-restricting them in how much weight they can do as they're learning the movements. Now, what's happening is, for instance, I could start the season with isometric positions. Why? One, it's likely going to induce less local fatigue, right? Isometrics compared to dynamic movements. Two, I am minimizing external load, also limiting local as well as global fatigue. And then three, I'm basically giving them the 
start of building up a base of resiliency towards that training stimuli. So that when I do start to work a little bit more dynamically through maybe emphasizing eccentrics or just dynamic work, whatever, or I'm increasing external load, they've already built up that buffer of resilience towards that training stimuli. So when they do start to be introduced to that more dynamic moment, they're not all of a sudden going to have massive local and global fatigue. So I can start off the season with that isometric emphasis and then maybe slowly as I feel like, okay, they're really adjusting well to the exercise and they're kind of hitting their ceiling of the minimal effective dose with the isometric pauses or emphasized phase of the movements. Now what I can do is I can take those away and the external load again goes up a little bit or maybe the, the complexity of the movement, right? Because they're now moving faster, all that kind of stuff, or maybe we're doing eccentrics, whatever, however we're looking at overloading or, or creating the next, uh, the next step in the progression, they already have that buffer. And those two things, limiting external load, limiting fatigue, at least in the, in, during the, the beginning phase of the year, uh, and making sure it's a learning mechanism, those three things, are like the biggest takeaways I like practically took from the book and that I'm implementing to this day with my athletic populations. Yeah. I think using those restrictions as a learning mechanism is one of the biggest adjustments I've made over the past four years. Just a very quick update on our online community. I just wanted to let community members know that we have a brand new webinar available to watch on demand on the community. This is from nutritionist Matthew Jones, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, working with a number of different clubs like Chelsea Women, uh, Brentford, and a number of others as well, and doing some incredible work in the in the world of nutrition. And Matt has presented a webinar around football nutrition but into a periodized approach as well. So he talks about how he periodizes his nutrition programs and the players that he works with too. So you can go and check that out on the community. So if you're already a member, just log in and it is in the video library section of the community. If you're not already a member and you're wondering what the community is all about, you can go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there. That will give you one month free on the community. If you don't enjoy it, you can cancel it before that month ends. If you do enjoy it, stay a member and it is only £4.99 per month going forward. We'll be adding loads of new webinars and also when our networking events are back up and running, our presentations from those events will also be uploaded onto the community so you'll get access to those whether you can make the event or not. So the loads of great content already available on the community but also and plenty coming over the next few weeks and months too. And I have give a little preview a few episodes back on the podcast, but we're just in the process of doing a big upgrade on the community as well. So it's the perfect time to join and get involved. Um, and yeah, I'm going to be, I'm really pleased and really excited to get this upgrade going. And I will give a few more details a bit closer to the time. But yeah, if you're not already a member, go and check it out, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab, sign up there. Here is part two of the episode with Yuri. I think it's a great point, especially on the teaching side of things. I think it's an absolutely superb point that slowing movements down, um, especially with the younger ages. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think it, it gives people, the, it gives athletes or uh, players the feedback straight away, doesn't it? And, and like you say, you can make it competitive. You can they start learning movements a lot better for, for the future. But what I was going to say was, 
in terms of if we're talking like academy ages and when i say academy i'm, I'm thinking more like 18s like end end stage of academy into 23s into first team how would things be manipulated from your point of view um what would the main differences be so if we're talking about learning movements at the younger ages we're talking about loading more eccentrically how would that then progress at getting into a first team and possibly first team within a season as well that's actually a very, very good question. Um, and it's an important question, I think, because that's, you know, the things that most practitioners are going to struggle with maybe. Now, from my experiences, there's a couple of things to consider here. One, what's the background of the athletes when they get to the under 18s, under 23s, or the first team, right? What have they been exposed to? Because maybe you could say, oh, well, at the age of 18 to 22, I'd ideally want to focus on maximal strength because at that point, or strength development, because at that point, it still has a lot of transfer towards ballistic movements, which is very important in the game of football, whatever you want to say. Okay. Like it's, it's just an example, of course. And once we get to first team, we just want to focus a little bit more on ballistic work, maintenance of certain things, and making sure we're not interfering with performance. Again, just an example. But if the players coming from the academy haven't been exposed to development of technical competencies in the lifts that you want to load uh, or use to develop strength, then you can say everything you want about how you want to load them at the age of 18. If they haven't been exposed to it and you're trying to immediately load them, that's going to put them at risk of injury, yeah. right? Whether it's short-term or long-term, it's going to put them at risk of injury. So the biggest thing I would say here is my answer is, understand what they have been exposed to up until this point in time and you adjust. Now, of course, you know, if you are in the position to influence uh, what's being done up until that point, fantastic. You know, you can say, okay, we're going to develop technical competencies for strength movements, plyometric movements, ballistic movements, all that kind of stuff as they go through their teenage years. And we start to load heavier as to get to towards these under 18, 20, 23 groups, whatever one want to say, right? Maybe that's it. And then first team, we just focus on maintenance, slowly improving upon individual weaknesses, but we don't want to interfere with performance on game day. Maybe that's the model. But if you don't have anything to say about what's happening before you, you adjust to what they've been exposed to because that's going to give you the least amount of risk, right? And maybe you're going to have to use less technical uh, developed athletes or, or less... Um, uh, technically demanding exercise. Maybe that's a, a better way of saying it. Like I want to load at this age. Okay. Yeah. I ideally want to use a front squat. Okay. They haven't done a front squat ever. They haven't done any bilateral squat. Okay. Uh, maybe I'm going to utilize a box or a pin squat because it's simpler to teach and it allows me to load them at least from the winter break until the end of the year. Right. Maybe that's it. Also, what if I'm in a situation where I get to work with athletes five days a week versus one time a week, that definitely alters what you're going to do with them. Because yeah. the guy that works five days a week might say like, hey, I really value Olympic weightlifting. I have the time and energy. My, my sport coach finds it very valuable that they spend time in the weight room, blah, 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 whatever. And then you say, okay, I find a lot of value in Olympic weightlifting. For whatever reason, I'm going to spend time on that. But what if you have a group that you only see once a week? Are you going to invest your time into teaching the Olympic lifts? Mm -hmm. I hope not. <laughs> That's not going to give you a good return on investment. So what have the athletes been exposed to up until the point that they get to you? That's one. And then what are your current resources as to how you're able to work with them? 
So if you can't influence either of those two, you're working with certain restrictions that then forces and influences what your programs, uh, your program in general is going to look like. Now, that, for instance, is very applicable to a first team scenario, especially if you work on the European level, like the higher levels, you will get players coming in and out, not just every season during the off season, but also winter break, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to have players coming from academy up, you know, and, and, and promoting up to the first team. So you're basically going to have a team of a lot of different backgrounds. You know, maybe the ones coming from the academy have been developed very well in the lifts that you want to see in the movements of plyometric movements, ballistic movements that you want to see. But then someone comes from Brazil and they haven't been exposed to anything but wall sits and push-ups. Yeah. Like you're going to throw that guy into your front squats and your trap bar jumps and your repeated hurdle hops. Probably not right. Again, or on the side of caution, you're probably going to have to adjust a little bit to saying, okay, what's the minimal risk situation that I can say where are we still, you know, might drive some adaptation where I'm not messing with this player. Cause there's probably a reason why he flew over from Brazil in the first place. Right. He's, he's already good. Like he didn't need you until this point. Um, so that has a massive influence. So generally what you're going to see, at least from my perspective, as they come through the academy, you focus on developing technical competency. That's the base of everything because it is so much easier to teach efficient movements than it is to unteach bad. I don't want to say bad, like there's bad movements, but inefficient movements to unteach that. It is so much easier to teach it than yeah. it is to unteach inefficient movements. So we start by building this foundation of technical competency and not just the lifts, you know, every type of training that we value. And then from there, we start to load those things when we feel like the athletes have developed this technical competency. For some players that might be under 16, for others, it might be under 18. Some of it might be under 21, under 23. It depends on how the athlete develops. That's also why it's important for players as they progress throughout the academies at younger ages and younger ages that just because they're going to the next team doesn't mean that they now all of a sudden should be loading heavier in the weight room. No. They still have kind of their individual plan as they move up through the ranks, right? Because we don't want to take any unnecessary risk. So we go from technical competency to loading and then likely maintaining or slightly pointing out things that we still need to prove upon. That's for the players that come from the academy. That's the players where you control, quote unquote, control the entire process. But if we're looking at athletes that might come from different backgrounds, then we really need to adjust. And that's why when you get to first team scenarios or scenarios where the primary aim is performing, if you get to that situation, then you have to individualize a lot more, not necessarily one-on-one, -on -one, right? Because a lot of staffs don't allow that. You don't have the resources, the time, the staff members, the money, all that kind of stuff to do that, maybe even the equipment. But for instance, you pair small groups together or you put in different time slots so you can work with individuals, uh, all that kind of stuff. So once you get to like the performance, you really start to individualize a little bit more or a lot more because it has more implications if you don't, right? At younger ages and younger age groups, of course, you individualize as much as you can through coaching cues and using different exercises that might fit the athlete better, we still want to develop them as a general athlete. So there's still largely a group element. And as they go further and further and further, it becomes more about individualization because if you don't individualize, it could have negative influences on the athlete's career as well as team performance on, uh, on game day.
that does that data kind of answer your question? Yeah, it does. There's so many factors that go into it, isn't it? And we touched on culture before, and that's that's one of them that's massive because, like we, when you said, if you've got a new signing coming in from a country that maybe don't focus so much on the physical side, you're essentially maybe taking them in at an academy level, aren't you? Like they might have, if you're you've got an academy player that's gone right away through the process, they might be coming in at the same sort of level as a as a fifteen or something like that. So you, you've got to see where they're at, haven't you? And then, like you said, you use the word adapt, um, adaptability or adapting with the first team. I think that's so important at that level, isn't it? To manage all those different individuals within the team setting. Yeah, and that's that's a big thing because, again, we want to think we're important, but we're really not. So yeah. a big thing is these athletes are super talented. There's a reason they get, like, teams are paid millions on millions to sell them. And the players get paid millions and millions to perform. Don't break them. Yeah. Like I understand you might see an athlete with a 40 centimeter vertical jump and you're like, that's not a quote unquote athlete. Like we need to fix him. You have to understand they're already performing at a very high level. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can tinker, maybe you can adjust little things, but I just personally would say, consider the fact that you should probably err at the side of caution more than pushing aggressively and being more dogmatic about how important it is that their standing vertical jump or their back squat goes up. Because yeah. as long as that doesn't result in them kicking a ball through the back of the net, then, you know, maybe it's, it, it should be secondary, which I think it should be. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we'll ju just shift it from um, along the force velocity curve a little bit now, going from focus a little bit more eccentric, isometric, into um, programming plyometrics, which I think would be interesting to get your thoughts on. One, because I've seen your post loads of great information on it, but also with the basketball background, um, just to see maybe the approach, was, whether there was anything you shifted over from basketball and, and the approach you take with the players. Yeah, for sure. I, I think... You know, plyometrics is a hugely, you know, maybe it's kind of misunderstood as to what it is for a training method. And because there's so many misconceptions about what it is, that then in turn kind of bastardizes the training method. Um, some people will say, you know, a box jump or a static jump is going to be a plyometric. And another person says, no, everything, uh, it's only a plyometric if it's a depth jump off 80 centimeters. Yeah. Like our Um <laughs> So it's like, it's important to understand what plyos are and how they can serve within the program. I think as strength and conditioning trainers, it is a massive tool for athletic development. It is something that needs to be developed at a very young age because for instance, one of the biggest misconceptions is that plyometrics are intensive by nature, which they don't have to be. Uh, or of course they they have a certain base level of intensity, of course, but they don't have to be the repeated hurdle hops or, or the depth jumps, all that kind of stuff. We can have very extensive, so sub-maximally oriented jumps. We can do this at a very young age because understand the game of football is plyometric by nature. You are cutting, sprinting, jumping, all these different things in sport in a very chaotic environment, meaning our players are by definition being exposed to plyometric training. Now, the question is, is that being done structurally with a progression in mind? No, because the game is chaotic. Yeah. No two situations will ever truly be alike. Everything's always going to be different. So if we want to develop their plyometric capabilities and thus increasing their resiliency to injuries that could occur during those movements on the field or on the pitch, we have to 
expose our athletes to a structured program where they're slowly over time being exposed to those stressors in a, um, a safe environment, for instance, a weight room or on the field in training sessions, that's fine. We can expose them to that stressor so that when they are exposed to it in the game, in a chaotic environment, under fatigue and all these other factors, higher stress, all that kind of stuff from, you know, being on TV, whatever, that they're already being exposed to those stressors, at least largely, right? So that's why we do them on one hand from a very young age, because we, we understand we can build this base. And then secondly, we can increase their capabilities in those plyometric movements if we progress them logically throughout time too, right? We can increase jump outputs, abilities to cut, abilities to stop, abilities to sprint through plyometric training. That's a hugely valuable tool and much more likely to transfer than strength training ever will to those movements in sport. Yeah. Because just looking at correspondence or dynamic correspondence between the two, like there's a lot more similarities between plyos and cutting or sprinting than there is between strength work and cutting or sprinting or jumping. So there's so much value in doing this or utilizing the method of plyometrics and training from a very young age and exposing them just like you would with strength training. What are we doing? We're building a base of technical competency at a young age. And then slowly but surely, we are intensifying the exercises as the players are able to complete the movements with technical efficiency or competency, just like we would with a squat or a clean or whatever exercise we might do. Over time, we built these higher stressors into their program, increasing resistance or resiliency and increasing their outputs making them better athletes, those that are able to stay on the field because they don't get hurt and those that have higher outputs in stuff that matters. So from a very young age, we're already developing this so that when, when you develop as an athlete, you have like concurrently strength developing, but also plyometric capabilities developing at the same time. Of course, there's more things, but let's just look at these two for uh, at the moment. And then what I've seen, going back to your second part of your question, what I've seen differentiating between basketball and football. Basketball, of course, there's a lot of jump contacts already through practice. Football, not as much. Mm. So in football, you might see a lot of very short ground contact times because they're being exposed to sprinting and cutting, not necessarily long contact times because you don't see that many jumps, especially two-foot jumps, for instance, right? They're not being exposed to that as much in training. So we can maybe dose that a little bit more in training, strength and conditioning training or physical development training than we would in basketball where they're already being exposed to those stressors, maybe far too much. That's why there's so many overuse injuries, different discussion. So maybe we, we can do it a little bit more in football than we can in basketball. Another thing I've noticed, football players are much lighter. Yeah. You, you know, the, the ancient saying is jumping is for cats and not for cows. So if you have very heavy, if you have a center that's 215 and he weighs 130 kilos, I'm, I mean, I mean, I'm going to be honest here. Like I've had those guys do plyometrics and it hasn't worked. Mm. It's, you know, I've had ankle, I've, I've had someone see, uh, develop an ankle injury. I've had them flare up a patellar tendinopathy more, all that kind of stuff at the beginning of my career, because I didn't really understand. I was like, Hey, but we need, like, they're slow. We need to do plyometric training. Yes, but cows don't jump. Like cows don't jump. It really, you know, it's that simple. If you find a cow in football, you're not working at a high level of football. <laughs> like that, by definition, you're only going to find cats or deers in football, and you're not going to find cows. Yeah. Like those just, you're not going to find those. Um, 
it doesn't suit the sport very well. <laughs> you're not, you're not surviving athletically in football. Um, so by definition, they can, you can expose them. I think a little bit more and what I've seen so far, a little bit more into plyometric training because their, their bodies are maybe made for a little bit more. While if you look at their frames, maybe you can't expose them to strength training as much as you could, for instance, a naturally stronger athlete. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like I can expose a combat athlete, like, you know, fighters, I can expose them to strength training six days a week. They yeah. feel fine, like heavy work. And it's no problem. If you do it in certain other sports that maybe aren't as strength oriented, they tend to have a little bit more pains and aches coming out of that. But then you let the really heavy guy do plyos and they get the pains and aches there. You let the light and shifty guy do it and he feels fine. Like, am I making a little bit of sense here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think it made sense to me as well when you're talking about basketball, because obviously I don't know too much about the game and how they prepare, but when you're talking about basically basketball players um, doing a lot of like double leg jumps in the game, it's very tempting, I'm guessing, then to replicate that in the gym, just go, well, they can they can do it. They're, they're great at it. They've got a great vertical. Let's do, let's do more of it. And it's like, well, you, they're not going to take too much away from that. So that's how I, that's how I, see that and transfer it to football in that we've got to look at the big picture again and say, right, what in terms of that, the different animals that we've got in the game, but also what do they need? What, what are they yeah. going to benefit from? Well, and that's, that's actually a very good point. If you don't mind another rant, um, <laughs> go for it. Like we spoke about key principles for in-season training, right? One of which being choosing the right moments and erring on the side of caution, rather do too little and too much. Now, if we actually look at what I'm prescribing, because that's not necessarily what we spoke about earlier, right? We looked at moments and how much. Now, what are we prescribing? For instance, are we going to do more plyometric work? Are we going to do more ESD? Are we going to do more strength work, ballistic work, whatever? That to me is looking at, okay, what physical competencies or physical qualities are required for our athletes to survive athletically at the level that they're vying to play at? Yeah. So if you're an American football player, the level of strength that you need is much higher than in football. In yeah. football, we likely only need the amount of strength to the point where it still transfers to ballistic movements. In American football, maybe it's a little bit more than that. Like even if it doesn't really have the transfer to ballistic movements anymore, we can still say we can invest in a little bit more for resiliency, robustness, or whatever. Like I, I of course don't work in that sport, but logically I could reason that that's the case. So we understand, okay, what physical qualities or competencies are required to survive athletically at the level that you're vying to play at. If you play, if you play Premier League, first you play a lower league, you need to be a lot more strong in the Premier League than you would elsewhere. So we need higher base levels of strength, meaning we're going to need to invest more time there. Okay, what are, for instance, other qualities? Speed, yeah. jumping, et cetera, et cetera, all these different things, proprioception, whatever it is, we start to find out. And that's what I, you know, what you do when you analyze a new sport that you're going to work in, what are those key competencies or qualities that we need to develop for them to survive athletically? That's the first thing you look at. Then you say, for instance, like you just said about basketball, oh, they jump. We need to jump. Yes. But what in season, of course, what, which of those physical qualities are already being developed or targeted or maintained or maybe even overstimulated through sport practice and games? Those qualities you do not touch mm. because they're already being targeted through the sport. But on the other hand, there are always qualities 
that aren't developed, targeted, et cetera, maintained through sport practice. The obvious one, of course, being, for instance, strength development or structure in plyometric progressions. Yeah. Those two are things that you're not going to have. Proprioceptive training or stability training, whatever you want to call it, also not really going to be targeted. So those are things where you could say, okay, those aren't being targeted in sport through the literature and also just analyzing the sport, understanding the sport. We know that there's value in developing this, looking at, of course, from athlete to athlete as to how important it is for them. We understand we probably need to be spending our energy there. Then the things that aren't of importance, for instance, squatting three times your body weight as a football player, we dismiss. We don't go there because it's not of importance to performance. And if it's not of importance to performance, we don't care. It's a waste of time and it's a waste of energy. So that then determines how much time and energy we will devote to certain physical qualities. So I could say, oh yeah, we need to do extra conditioning. Like, have you ever seen a football player that's not well conditioned by the end of the year? Like they're probably doing too, like they're probably being overtrained more than anything else. Yeah. So do we really need to be putting extra effort in there? Right. So that's basically how I view it. So I said, key principles, right? One, making sure that we're doing rather too little than too much. We're looking at when to stress them, but then also what we stress and how much that's based on what's important for the sport, what's not being targeted through sport practice and games. And that is why we have a job is those other qualities. Superb. Yeah. I think that's a great breakdown. Um, for, to give people an insight into how to approach the programming, but also how adaptable you got to be within that programming as well. Um, obviously, there's there's no one answer to a lot of this, isn't it? And, and when we've talked about some of these, like you've gave great examples on different ways you can go about it and different different athletes, different players that you're dealing with. But I think it's a really important, invaluable um, discussion to have around this because I think it's really important, especially in football and especially in, in the modern day game. I think this comes even more relevant when you're talking about Champions League, you're talking about Premier League, you're talking about some of the top leagues in Europe, speed, strength, power, like we're talking, that it's getting more and more um, down that route. So yeah, really, really appreciate you going through all that. Um, I'm wary of time because I don't want to take up your whole evening because uh, it is Friday night as we record this. So I don't want to um, disrupt your whole evening. So we'll move on to some of the quick fire questions just at the end. First one being... Have you got, or can you talk us through some of the biggest influences on your career so far? Yeah, biggest influences. Um, well, one, a disclaimer. I don't like, they're quick questions. Do they have to be quick answers? No, no. <laughs> okay, I, need to I keep saying I need to change the name of this section. I've gone quick fire, but it's not really quick fire. I'm going to okay. quote another. Um, anyone who's got a little... Give me a little tagline for this bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think one thing, it doesn't necessarily have to be positive. Like I've been influenced negatively in my career too. And those have been some of the biggest lessons maybe. So, you know, I've, I've been influenced positively by other trainers, whether they're personal trainers that haven't worked with an athlete ever in their life right? And they maybe helped me understand the intricacies of movement from a weight room perspective. I've worked a ton with weightlifting coaches. They yeah. taught me so much about how to optimize and uh, increase efficiency as quick as possible in the Olympic lifts or in, you know, the big lifts, all that kind of stuff. I've learned from sprint coaches. I've learned from jump coaches. I've learned from physios, doctors, nutritionists, so many different people. 
And if I look back at it, I'm like, yeah, I couldn't really point out one thing because I can learn so much from how other people do it. Like sport coaches, I've yeah. learned so much from about leadership from them, good and bad. <laughs> and those are things that I now take with me, like for my own experiences to make my own mistakes, which ultimately is the biggest influence of my career is the mistakes that I've made and learning how to be honest with myself and looking in the mirror and trying to correct mistakes, understand why they happen and making sure that there's, you know, the smallest possibility that's going to happen again, right? That's the biggest influence to me, but learning from all these different people puts you in the best position to then go out and do what you have to do. Right. So I wouldn't say there's like one, one specific thing. It's, it's positive. It's negative. And like, to be honest, also players. Yeah. Like I've learned a ton from players. Like I started working in strength and conditioning. I think that's then I want to say I was 24, 25. And the first time I worked with athletes that were younger than me was the under 23s at IX two years ago. That was yeah. the first time I ever worked with athletes that were younger. I had always worked with athletes that were older that had been on the international stage for, I don't know how long Olympic athletes, been at the highest stages, highest levels. So I got exposed to so many high performers and I was basically a lot of times a student, like, of yeah. course you're a coach and you're teaching them things, but they teach you so many lessons that then help you understand other athletes better and to communicate with them better uh, to help them because they give you certain perspectives about how it is when you're younger and how it is when you get to the top. And the phase in between you, when you first get a little bit of fame, what happens to them and all these different things that I'm then able to understand the players or the staff or whatever, a lot better through their eyes, because I will never experience those things. Mm. So I can't understand, but I can try because I hear the stories and I listen and I learn so much from them. So sorry, I don't really have like one answer, but it's, oh, no, it's, it's cool. so many different weeks culminating. I think the other point on the players is, thinking about especially experienced players how many coaches have they worked with in their time so like you might be talking if they've had a few moves you might be talking 10 plus coaches like i'm talking sports science s and c maybe but also technical side like you're talking a lot of experience aren't you so yeah 100 you got to draw from working with players um next one being what would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner they say your biggest strength is always your biggest weakness too, right? Um, at, I know, I think that's tough. You asked me, of course, and I was like, all right, my big, my biggest strength, like, I don't know if there's necessarily, these are, answers are boring. I don't know if there's necessarily <laughs> one thing. Um, I think it's likely my ability to connect with players. Uh, I yeah. think that's been primarily the reason why I've grown. Uh, for instance, when I started working with the national team, that was because of players. When I went to my first professional basketball team, that was also because of players. So I've, I've always been fortunate to develop relationships with players, um, to the point where they trusted me, uh, with their livelihood basically. Right. Because they're, they're putting their career or a small portion of their career in my hands. And I think that if I would have to point out one thing, then it's probably me being able to uh, develop relationships with players. Now that could also be a downside, right? Because um, in certain circles or situations, people might not appreciate it as much if you actually develop relationships with players because they think it should be a lot more formal, a coach yeah. 
authoritative figure and then the athlete, which I think personally, honestly, doesn't suit modern day sports. Mm. I don't think it does. It used to in the eighties and nineties, maybe the two thousands, but where we are right now, players need to be educated and understand and willing to work with you. If you don't have buy-in from your players, especially at the highest levels of sport, you're going to get fired before you know it. Like you have to be able to communicate with them, understand them. They have to trust you. It's a human based craft. So I'd say personally, that's probably my biggest thing is to develop those relationships. And that's also the reason why I do it. Like, to be honest, like I, I just love working with the guys. I, I love helping them. That's the reason why I do it. Uh, and if, if they succeed and they're happy, I don't care about anything else but that. So. And in terms of um, your learning, your education going forward, we always ask about CPD. So in terms of whether there's been any courses you've done recently, and I know with COVID and think there might not have been, but courses, webinars, podcasts, is there anything that sort of s- stuck out for you where you've watched, listened and taken things in and applied it to your practice? Well, at the beginning of my career, um, you know, I do a couple courses here and there. You read a lot of books and the beautiful thing about those means of studying or learning is that they offer a very general base of knowledge. Anything in a course is going to be general by definition, because it is not written or developed specifically to offer solutions for your specific problems that you encounter in practice. They're to give you a general framework that you can then apply within your setting. It gives you tools, maybe principles that you can adhere to, right? So at the beginning of your career, those things are fantastic. Throughout your career, you can still stay updated on those things to keep learning new things and new things and maybe evolving as a coach. But as you go further along, you do start to realize a lot more. You encounter very specific problems and those specific problems require very specific solutions. Context is king. That's basically how I always look at it. So you have to have this broad base and now I have to understand, okay, I have all these tools that I've you know, developed or gathered over the years. Now, how am I going to apply the right one for the right task? Yeah. If I only have one tool, let's say it's a hammer, every problem I'm going to see is a fucking nail Yeah. because I only have a hammer. But if I have a various amount of tools, I'm going to find different ones that might be a little bit more or that might offer me the best bang for my buck from a practical standpoint. So what happened for me over the past years, and I want to say, especially since COVID happened, is one, I got in contact due to the fact that a lot of guys didn't have work at that point, like during the first quarantine, I got in contact with a lot of coaches in different sports or situations. So I was very blessed to talk with uh, you know, guys like Chris Borthwick, right. Who was at Wake Forest at that time. Um, uh, James. So Jerry athletes edge. Like I spoke to him frequently during that time, of course, him also working in football and I was kind of being introduced to football. Uh, I spoke to guys in the NBA. I spoke to guys all over the world. And like, you start to basically just discuss about certain things, because if you work at the highest levels of sport, you, you encounter regardless of sport, very similar problems, very similar problems. So you start to discuss about those and that's how you get much more specific answers or maybe solutions to the problems that you're encountering. So that to me was very valuable over the past year and a half. And that's kind of how I've progressed into learning is now more, I want to say like kind of sparring with different people about problems rather than learning or reading one book, which I still do. I still read books. I'm for instance, doing the strength coach network fundamentals course from Kier Wenham flat brilliantly set up love it 
I still do that kind of thing, but I'm primarily learning the most from speaking with other professionals and being open about what I'm doing, what I might be doing wrong and letting them critique or discuss what I could be doing better because I think that's super valuable. And then with that said, also roughly around that same time, um, I got exposed a little bit more towards being asked to speak on podcasts, uh, to write articles. I did my own webinar for Strength Coach Network. Uh, it's called Optimizing the Training Process in Basketball. It basically goes into in-season versus off-season training. And what that did for me is I had to learn how to um, say what's on my mind, what's like always bubbling inside of my head as far as ideas are and how I do things and making sure that other people could understand why I do certain things. I have to be able to argument why I make certain decisions. And so that's basically how I've learned over the past year is learning how to explain and build a foundation for why you're making decisions or why maybe you shouldn't make a decision. Because if I put something out there, now I'm being exposed to critique, right? If I say, oh yeah, I microdose during the season, or I uh, decide to not really focus on stimulating physical qualities during the season, then I also have to think, okay, what would someone's rebuttal be? Why would that not be a good idea? Mm -hmm. And by asking that question, basically poking holes in your own arguments for argument's sake, you're not only improving upon your own process because you have to be very honest with yourself because otherwise someone else will. Right. And that's never a good feeling if you quote unquote get exposed for something. So you start to attack it from a totally different perspective. Instead of just doing something for the sake of doing it, you really have to understand why. And I've always very much been about trying to understand why and, and quantifying why I do certain things, but now even to an even bigger extent, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I've spoken to a few people about that, about podcasting and webinars and stuff. Like it does improve you as a practitioner to go and do something like that and put yourself out there. Um, Just final, final couple of years in terms of, I always ask about, um, and I'm thinking more younger coaches now in their careers, um, important traits for them to develop, or if there is one important trait that sort of stands out for you to be effective, successful with players? Care. Make sure you care. Yeah. And by that, I mean care about the athletes, care about the organization, care about the people. Don't care about your own reputation or success. I think that's a common pitfall. We want to think we're very important, right? I've said that about five times now. Yeah. Um, we want to think we're very important. And so we value reputation and we value our own success. And that's important, of course, because, you know, uh, you have to have financial security, job security. So it's important. Don't get me wrong, but you should care about the players and the people that you're working with. And I specifically say people because that's what they are. If yeah. you understand them as people, you're going to help them better as athletes. So you have to care. You have to care about your craft. You have to care about the people you're working with. That's first and foremost. If you don't do that, I mean, you might still be very smart, but you're probably a douchebag. So I don't know if you're fit for the field. That's one. Uh, And then two, I think you have to be very aware of your own biases. We are, as human beings, by definition, biased. Yeah, like I, I've, I've listened to Dan Pfaff talk over the years so many times, and I hope one day maybe I'll have a conversation with him because he always makes me feel like the dumbest person on earth. And I'm sure if I stood next to him, I'd feel like legit the dumbest person on earth. But he always speaks about the importance of understanding how biased we are. 
And he always, for every talk, will acknowledge his own biased nature as to why he looks a certain from a certain perspective, a, a perspective at certain certain problems. And I think it's very important for all of us to look and say, okay, why does my perspective develop this way? Why am I looking at a problem in this manner? How else could I look at this? But also if someone else comes in, if you come into an organization and they might all love Olympic weightlifting and you're like Olympic weightlifting, that's a fucking waste of time. Like, why are you doing this? Understand what their bias might be towards making that decision. Because that could then pull you closer in and start an actual conversation or a discussion where you can might pull them a little bit more towards your side. Well, if you just stay on your side and you're like, you know, you're idiots, what are you doing? And you don't acknowledge where they're coming from, it's going to be very hard to be successful. So besides caring, understanding, and maybe even appreciating your own biases as well as those of others. Because if you acknowledge them, then it's going to be much easier to work in practice because we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Sorry, Ben, you're probably not perfect. Nobody I've worked with is perfect. So that's just the way it is. So I think like we have to, we have to care. Yeah. We have to make sure that we really, really, really are aware of these biases and that we, we acknowledge these biases and then we adhere to key principles, right? Just key really? principles, not necessarily methods. We adhere to key principles. If you do those three things, you know, and you just put the work in, I'm sure you're going to be fine. Real. And then final one, mate. And this will be interested from um, not only you work in football, in basketball, but some of the other athletes you've worked with as well. So don't just think of it from a football point of view, but common traits of high performers, and I'm talking players now, um, is there anything that sort of stands out for you where you'd say like literally all the people that all the, all the athletes that I've worked with that have gone on to perform at the highest level have all been all done this? Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I've been very fortunate to work with very high athletes from a young age, uh, to analyze them, to observe them. And <laughs> as much as when you get into the craft, you think like, Oh, the hard workers are the ones that perform best. It's like, Sorry, buddy. <laughs> That's not the case in reality. Um, there are plenty of very hard workers at the highest levels that are very good at what they do, but there are also plenty of those that survive more than fine and they're lazy as shit. Yeah. A lot of them. Yeah. And then you can always say, okay, but what's the alternate universe? Like if they would have worked harder, would their career have panned out better? Maybe we don't know. You won't know. I've had athletes that, were quote unquote lazy or maybe in the weight room or from a physical development perspective that after a while had this huge professional shift and then you could really see them take off. Like I've seen that too, but that's not the key distinguishing factor from what I've seen is work. Like I, that's not what I've seen. Intelligence also isn't that talent, you know, just pure ability. Sure. Gets you in the door but also yeah. not the highest of high performance. And now I'm talking like the, the real elite. Mm. What I have seen about the real elite is they're super, super competitive. Yeah. And laser focused in their sport. So they could mess around walking until the, like during warmups and drills that they feel like doesn't matter. Like they'll just, they don't care whatever. But when the lights are on, they are ultra competitive and they're ultra focused, laser focused. From the start to the end, they tend to be the ones that hold other people a little bit more accountable too, 
right? They have this certain standard that they want the other players to adhere to. And they, I've also kind of seen they can be a little bit more aggressive, <laughs> you know, with their leadership styles, maybe. I don't know if that's, maybe that's a little bit less common compared to the, the competitiveness and, and the focus, but I have definitely seen that as a common denominator amongst them. But competition and focus, nature in the sport, when the lights are on, those are like the things, I, I, I can't recall one player, female, male, from combat sports to weightlifting, to basketball, to football, that does not have those traits. Like I can't off the top of my mind, maybe there are, maybe I'm shooting blanks here, but I, I, I can't recall one, one that didn't have those, those attributes. Yeah. Brilliant, mate. Some incredible information in this. I really appreciate your time. Like I say, especially on a Friday night, giving it up to speak to me. <laughs> There's many, many better things you could be doing, but I really appreciate you coming on. Um, in terms of people following you, maybe reaching out, where would you direct people? Yeah, um, I spend far too much time on social media. So I just say it. it's uh, at Yuri Pagel on uh, Instagram. That's, that's where you can find me. Brilliant, mate. Well, yeah, again, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And when we get into next season, best luck for the season as well. Thanks so much for having me on, Ben. And uh, yeah, we're definitely going to do our part, hopefully. Brilliant, mate. We'll take care. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to episode 140. And big thank you for Yuri for giving up his time. Um, he went into unbelievable detail on some of the work he does and I hope you took plenty from this podcast like I did as always I've got a list of takeaways from it but um, we spoke about the sort of perception of SNC in football when he first stepped into the sport which was interesting um, understanding the situation so understanding the sport the culture before trying to change anything which has come up a few times I remember speaking to Neil Par- uh, to Neil Parsley about that as well when he stepped into the world of football football being a year round sport and that is no more um relevant than this year obviously the season that we've had the the fixture congestion but also going into anyone that's working with any players that are going into the euros whether that's first team or under 21s like it's such a a busy year and we think about an off-season. Obviously, we spoke about off-season periodization in the podcast, but some of these players aren't really even getting an off-season. They're literally just bouncing from season into a tournament, probably going to have a couple of weeks off and then delving straight back into either a pre-season or a season. So football being an all or a year-round sport, I think that was a great point from Yuri. Um, we spoke about the minimal effective dose. So some of the Yuri's approach to um, putting aspects of strength into a player's routine but starting small and then it gives you room to add on to it rather than trying to implement um, plenty into a really busy schedule of a player um, starting small and then trying to grow it and also he, he, he went into the fact time and time again that we're one of the least important um, practitioners in terms of a player's preparation but we don't want to be trying to take over the performance on the pitch is the main thing and all we're trying to do in our role is support that um, and optimise it any way that we can. So starting small, trying to add certain aspects into a player's routine, and then we can always build on that. Um, he spoke about stressing as far away from the game as possible. And that, I think that was a great point, looking at a player's preparation. And this is also what I think, um, I won't name names right now, but I think some practitioners that are working individually with players do this unbelievably well. And I can 
I can say that Yuri is definitely one of them, but there are plenty of us out there that I see the work that they do. It's not just um, for social media. It's not just uh, trying to capture uh, fancy clips for the camera, but they're doing some great work that potentially isn't, that clubs might not have enough time to do. They might not have um, as, as much time to individualise on that sort of a basis. And there is some great work being done. I know we speak a lot about work that isn't probably as optimal as it can be away from clubs, but I've got to say there is also some brilliant work being done by practitioners as well. And that for me is something that they do incredibly well, stressing as far away from the game as possible. He also spoke about using eccentrics for teaching movements, which I think was a great point. And I know he referenced working with youth players on that, but I think any players with a low training age, um, the use of eccentrics, obviously you have to be wary of the time of season. We don't want to be causing too so, too much soreness at certain times, but um, in terms of a teaching, um, a teaching model, I think it's a great point. Um, and there was plenty more as well. They were some of the standouts for me. But I'm sure you took plenty from this one. If you've not heard of Yuri, go and give him a follow. Check him out on Instagram. I know he's not on Twitter, but go and give him a follow on Instagram. If you're on Instagram, he puts some great content up there. And as always, please give this show a share. I appreciate everyone that does it. And um, the audience is growing all the time. And that is from you guys sharing it, pushing it out to other practitioners and coaches. So please continue to do that and help me share it and try and get some of these podcasts which have got some great information in out to as many coaches and practitioners as possible. But we'll finish it there. Big thank you again for listening and I'll speak to you again next week in episode 141.